Radio Bio is adhering to COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, and we are committed to producing fun and educational podcasts for your enjoyment. Please excuse the difference in the audio quality of our post-production while we use online tools to safely work from home. We appreciate you tuning in. Don't know much biology. We live in a microbial world. From our own gut to the corals in the ocean, microbes are key players in the existence of so many organisms. Did you know that corals aren't just single organisms, but exist in symbiosis with millions of single-celled algae? This symbiosis is currently threatened by global warming and climate change, resulting in a process you may be familiar with called coral bleaching. This week, we spoke with Dr. Virginia Weiss about her timely and fascinating research on the topic of symbiosis between corals and algae. This is Radio Bio. Hi, welcome to Radio Bio. I'm Shkala. And I'm Layla. We have with us Dr. Virginia Weiss, a professor from Oregon State University. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. This is a real treat. We're really excited to have you. So our first question is just broadly speaking, what is your research? Broadly, I study coral symbiosis, and that is that corals make these big coral reefs that we know about, and that those coral reefs are the foundation of a whole ecosystem, and that that animal is actually not just an animal. It is comprised of the animal that houses a bunch of algae inside of it that sort of set the structural foundation of the reef, but also it feeds the base of the food chain. And my group is really interested in understanding that symbiosis and how it works and how the two partners interact with one another, how they decide to be together or not, who's right, who's wrong. And we do most of this work in a little sea anemone, not in corals themselves, because sea anemones are really easy to study in the laboratory. So that's what we would call sort of a classic model system for the study of something else, a proxy for the study of something else. So we study sea anemone symbiosis. What makes sea anemones a good proxy for coral? So this particular little anemone that we study is an aquarian pest. Okay, so aquarists who grow corals hate aptasia because it grows so well. It grows really easily and it's very weedy. And so one of the huge values of aptasia is that you can culture it very easily in the laboratory. It grows rapidly, it clones, so it walks across like the Petri dish, and it leaves little bits of its foot behind, and those little bits of foot grow up into a whole anemone. And so you like you're looking at your Petri dish, you look away, you look back, and there are like five animals there. So very rapid growth, and it harbors the same symbiotic algae that corals do. And so you can study that interaction very closely. You can also cause the sea anemones to lose their algae, just like corals do in the sort of ecological catastrophe that's coral bleaching, which you probably have heard about. But when you cause uh, anemones to bleach, they don't die. And so you can bleach them, and then you can reintroduce the algae, and you can study the loss and the gain of algae. So you have a lot of power, experimental power. So that's why it's a good proxy for corals, which are very hard to study for lots of reasons. Some of the reasons are now, at this point, honestly, they're endangered. You can't get permits to collect them, but also other more sort of biology-related problems like they have a skeleton 
they grow really slowly. So the generation time for corals is sometimes thousands of years. Whereas a little sea anemone, bah, it's quick. So there's a lot of power in having something that's tractable in the laboratory where you can learn about a system that's more relevant ecologically, but that is much harder to study. Yeah, I have kind of a follow-up question to that because you mentioned coral bleaching. And I think I've had this misconception that once that happens, the coral's dead. There's no coming back from that. But the way that you made it sound, it was more like there's an association going on there and bleaching means that there's this loss of association. So is there hope in terms of coral bleaching not necessarily being the, the end for these coral? Yeah. So um, the hope piece, I'm going to set that aside for a minute. That's a hard and complicated question. Coral bleaching classically defined means indeed that the host animal loses its algae, but doesn't necessarily die. So the capacity, the potential to reacquire algae is there, but we don't really fully know if, are there a few algae left behind in the animal that then repopulate the animal? Or do the algae have to come back in from the seawater? There's potential, exciting, that algae could come into a coral that's been bleached, new algae that are resilient to stress, like resilient to climate change, right, could come in and populate that host. And sort of you'd make a what has been called a super coral, right? So scientists are trying to figure out, can we make that happen in the lab? And is it possible in nature? So there's a lot of interest there. Or could we breed algae and or corals to make them more resilient and then make these combinations. But so that now to bring the hope back part into it, the fact is that global warming is at a point where thermal stress is so extreme that in many cases, when you have bleaching, the coral just dies. It just basically melts off the skeleton. So you don't even necessarily have bleaching per se. You have bleaching because you've got a dead white skeleton. So that comes to this degree of stress issue, right? Bleaching events happen uh, in, with increasing frequency. It's almost like the well of resilience that the hosts, the host corals had gets depleted. And so they don't have time to recover. And so then, you know, you have one and then you have another and then the third one, they're done, right? So, so the hope piece is hard, but um, there is potential and there's a lot of interest in understanding whether or not with assisted evolution. So intervention by humans, we can help corals become resilient, possibly by recombination of the partnership. Uh, so you mentioned that corals are endangered currently, what it would be the larger impact on the marine ecosystem if they go extinct? Hmm. Yeah, so I don't think corals are going to go extinct. Corals as uh, a large class of animals, they're not going to go extinct. Some coral species will likely go extinct. The coral reef ecosystem, it's kind of done. It's really Again, I, I'm not trying to um, make everybody sad, but I think we need to be realistic about what we're dealing with. And in many parts of the world, many developing nations, either sea level rise will be so dramatic that the nations themselves will go away, the reefs may not, but the nations themselves will go away, 
or the reefs become so degraded that they cease to be functional. So that's, I think, what your question is. So for humans, so we have about half a billion humans on the planet who rely directly on reefs. So we're not even talking about beauty here. We're not talking about, oh, you know, we've got to save pristine reefs. We're talking about the bare, you know, reality that we have half a billion people who need reefs to survive. They need them to survive because they get protein from the reef. So they fish. Tourists come to reefs and give them money for their economies. Reefs are storm barriers are more dramatic storms that are happening because of climate change. As those barriers break down, then the land itself is impacted and, you know, threatened. So there are big, big reasons why reefs are important to humans, let alone just the, you know, the heuristic value that they have and the value, the biodiversity value they have. So we have a lot of challenges in accepting that reefs are changed and then looking forward uh, to help what we have left um, to serve humans as best we can moving forward. Yeah, so you mentioned that corals, they're not just an organism, but a collection of different organisms. So can you talk a little bit more about what's there? And so they associate with this algae or with Aptasia, but what does Aptasia actually do for the coral or for the thing it's associating with? Yeah, so I'm an animal biologist, and so this whole information age of finding out that there are all these other things associated with corals, it's highly inconvenient. It's way more complicated than it used to be. So uh, what we know now is that corals are kind of inside-out guts, honestly. So corals have these huge surface areas. And it's an epithelial layer, which is the same as our gut, right? So, and there's all this mucus associated with the epithelium. And so it's just an incredibly rich ground uh, area for, um, for bacteria, for microbes, not just bacteria, but bacteria and archaebacteria and fungi. So that's the outside of the coral. Um, and then there's this, you know, there's sort of um, what, I, what we say, they're microbial ecosystems. They're harboring all these microbes on the outside of them. But they're also, um, there's now very strong evidence that there are microbes in the skeleton that they deposit, um, including um, photoautotrophs, so cyanobacteria, which fix carbon just like algae do. And then, of course, there's the inside of the animal, which is where the algae that I'm so interested in, in the epithelial lining of their, their gut. And so it's a very complex... I forgot to mention viruses. There are all these viruses that are, you know, associating with the microbes, they're associating with the hosts, they're associating with bacteria or with the algae. So it's this big soup, this big ecosystem of interactions that honestly are not well understood. The by far the best understood interaction is that between the host and the algae. But, you know, we now kind of know, like, you can grow the algae in a flask, many types in, a, in, a, in culture, but they're really hard to grow without their help or bacteria. So what do those bacteria do? We have no idea. Um, there's evidence that there are viruses in the, in the algae. So are those viruses latent pathogens or are they beneficial? You know, all these really, really cool questions. So when we talk about sort of this idea of the holobiont, so the whole animal harboring this ecosystem of microbes, 
And, you know, is evolution acting on the holobiont or is it acting on the individuals of the holobiont? Really good sort of questions about how change happens through time, not well understood. But what we do know is that those, the makeup of the holobiont changes with a changing climate. So we can really show very clearly that that happens pretty dramatically. Here, Dr. Weiss mentions the concept of a holobiont. Holobiont is a term in symbiosis research that refers to a host and all the other species living around it. In this case, a coral holobiont would refer to the coral, as well as all the algae that are associating with it. There is some disagreement among scientists about whether it is appropriate to consider an organism, along with all its symbionts, as a unit. But Dr. Weiss and our interviewer Shkola delve more into this topic. Speaking of the holobiont, this term has sparked controversy amongst different fields studying symbiosis. Why do you think that there is so much uncertainty around this term, and what does it mean to you and your research? Yeah, I think that maybe the controversy is in part based on an incomplete understanding of the interactions between the organisms. So fair enough. So I think as humans, we want to assign a cost-benefit analysis on each of these interactions. And so when we can't do that, then you question, well, if it's there, but it's not contributing, you know, is there value? Is it just using it as a habitat kind of thing? And so I can't, I can't say that I can contribute to, you know, resolving the controversy. But what I can say is that the more these holobiont collectives are studied, the more patterns that we see, and that if you can start to predict patterning and predict changes in patterning, patterning, then to me, that provides evidence that the holobiont is a thing, right? It's not just um, a bunch of microbes hanging out in a certain place, right? So, but again, I'm not, I'm not the microbial um, ecologist expert, but it's, it's, a ma- it's a computing problem, honestly. It's a sequencing and computing problem that I think over time getting an answer to what a holobiont means. I have kind of a weird question, a little bit more philosophical, and then we can we can get back to the science. But I always have this question when we have people who study symbiosis, because this idea comes up that an individual can be more than the sum of its parts, right? We now, with studies of the gut microbiome, with so many organisms, with so many things, we understand that they exist as organisms together and they help each other. And sometimes, like you mentioned, it's really hard to grow one organism without its helper bacteria. So how has this affected your view of the individual? Oh, yeah. I think um, this is a great place where the study of biology, it's gone from an all-white men, adversarial predator-prey interactions. Symbiosis is rare, right? So when I started many years ago in the field of symbiosis, it was a bunch of just-so stories, like, oh, and a cute little, uh, little legumes, you know, your, your sweet peas, they have little nodules that have bacteria. Isn't that nice, right? It's like, oh, there are only a few examples. To now where we are, which is we live, so the, the, the catchphrase is big organisms like humans, we live in a microbial world. So we are completely surrounded by microbes. And so those interactions are so complex. And again, to try to nail mutualist versus, you know, parasite versus commensal, these, these terms of 
cost benefit. Uh, it's because we want, as humans, we want to order those things, but it's actually way more complex than that, right? And so the interactions are, they're dynamic, they're in real time, they're context uh, dependent. So, you know, E. coli is a great example. Like, if you get E. coli in your bladder, you have a bladder infection. If you have E. coli in your gut, most strains, um, it's beneficial, right? So it's very context dependent. And that I'm sure that's true with corals too. So you have Infectious disease of corals in the Caribbean has become a huge problem. There are all these horrible diseases that are ravaging corals, what few corals are left. <laughs> and um, a lot of them are opportunistic pathogens who don't do well. Opportunistic meaning they're hanging out and then they find a good spot to get in there and then they get in there and really cause a problem. But that's a context issue, like something in the environment changes, something makes them able to do well. Where, where they didn't used to. And so that, to me, suggests that the holobiont, there's a disequilibrium that happens that allows for these negative changes to develop and changes the equation dramatically. So our evolution in thinking about interactions is a really a history of science question, in my opinion, that today's world where we know way more because of all this genomic sequencing is a much better approximation of what life really is you are a force in freezing corals to preserve genetic diversity. What inspired this idea? Oh, I like this question. In 2018, I had this sort of year of mourning. The blinders came off and I realized, you know what? The organisms that I've studied for my whole career are going to go away as we know them. And that made me so sad. And I had been denying that coming in my brain until I just couldn't deny it anymore. And so I had that year where I just managed and thought and, you know, dealt with that sort of grief. But at the same time, I started to think, well, you know what? I have a lot of talents <laughs> that most people don't have that can bear directly on this, even though I can't study it directly in my lab. Um, this is what we've got. How do we move forward? And honestly, I have millennial age children, so older than you folks, but who had been telling this to me for a while, like, mom, get over it. Like, you ruined, you guys ruined it all, so let's look forward. So anyway, so I finally, like, I absorbed that a little bit and um, started to think, look around and say, you know, where can I make a contribution that, you know, yes, I'm, the discovery in my lab is making a contribution. Absolutely. Talking about assisted evolution and really know, deeply knowing the biology of the organisms, sure, that's making a contribution for you. But directly, where can I help? There's a group of people who study cryopreservation, so cryobiology, uh, which is where you take live animals, live tissue, live eggs, live embryos, and you are able to freeze them down until their metabolism is just doing absolutely nothing. They're not aging. They're doing nothing. But then you have the expertise to rewarm them correctly without killing them and then let them carry on, right? So, and that's not a new topic. We can do that with human embryos, right? We can do it with a lot of things. In corals, we're going to lose all this biodiversity. We're going to lose it. But then we, we turned a corner where we said, you know what? We're not going to be able to preserve them anymore. That's just where we are. So then you start to open up your mind about, okay, what are the other things we should do? Cryopreservation. Okay, you have genetic diversity, population diversity in the remaining corals that we have. So if we take and are able to preserve that diversity now, 
even if we can only preserve it, say, in sperm, which is right now where the field is, then even if there are only a few eggs left from a few females in the future, you can recapitulate that diversity, right? And so now there's really a race to A, get the expertise and technology to cryopreserve, say, little fragments of corals, cryopreserve embryos, cryopreserve eggs. And so there's that, you know, drive towards innovation. That, but there's also a drive to develop sort of a global repository where we have a common database that we share among countries. So I've been involved in trying to um, sort of act as a program manager where we're trying to find funds and we're work with these big groups of scientists who talk to one another so that we build as a, as a whole community, we build these, um, these germ banks. So that's what I've been trying to do. As, you know, another woman in science, I found that very inspiring and something that I want to be able to say one day and, and really believe because when you said it, I sensed a lot of conviction in those words. And I just want to know what advice do you have for future researchers so I think there are a couple of ways. One is to try to look forward. Self-care, so taking care of yourself so that you can get up and fight another day. And honestly, this is a hard message right now coming out of the pandemic where we've all been struggling so much with just like existing. Limiting your doom scrolling. Then you are fresh to to work on these big, big challenges that we have. For students like college kids and graduate students who are wondering how their interests can be leveraged into helping, becoming well-trained and knowledgeable in science education, communicating that to your family members, to your community, that's where I feel like science was late to the party. But the faith in the process of knowledge acquisition network building over time provides that confidence and that maturity that, again, you don't necessarily have to take to research. You could It could be beyond in, in any set of um, ways, but that training in science provides you with critical thinking and critical analysis. And um, whether or not you find a profession where you are directly impacting, you know, climate science or something like that. I think that's that's a possibility too, but all of those other things makes a difference. Well, I think we're probably running out of time, so I just want to make sure that we say thank you, Dr. Weiss, for giving us such a wonderful interview and just so much great so many great topics to chew on and think about. When thinking about topics related to climate change, sometimes it can be heavy. Seeing photos of coral bleaching and the impacts of sea level rise can be disheartening. Dr. Weiss and the work that she does grapples with all of these big topics like breakdown of symbiosis due to climate change and how corals will survive into the future. She felt so strongly about doing something. She's leading cryopreservation efforts for a potential future for corals. In the face of all these heavy topics, there are still reasons to be hopeful. This is Radio Bio, signing off. This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Yumari Vasquez. The artwork was created by Maya Powell. Editing was done by Ryan Torres. The interviewers were Shkula Babi and Layla Wahab. Post-production inserts were created and recorded by Layla Wahab. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, the Graduate Division, 
and the University Friends Circle at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net.